Hey, today uh, is a special day for a lot of reasons. Veterans Day, certainly, uh, having Bridge Foster Ministries here, um, but also because Matthew Pinnell is going to preach what I think may be his first sermon. I could be wrong. I, now, I've been told he preaches to some people a lot. I don't know, but I don't know what that means. Matthew might have to explain that when he comes out, but... Uh, most of you here know Matthew and his family, but for those of you who don't, uh, Matthew grew up over in Rocky Mount, and um, he grew up in a Christian home and a Christian school. He ended up getting a, his degree from UNCW, and um, Matthew is a microbiologist, I believe, and he works at Maine Pharma. Now, that's what he does, but who he is, now that's something special. Matthew had a longtime friend, Christy Price, and they finally got together. They finally wised up, and they got married, and they have three beautiful boys, Matthew, Luke, and Noah. And uh, you may be wondering, why is a microbiologist preaching today? <laughs> well, God has been moving in Matthew's life, and Matthew's been feeling like God wants him to do something. He doesn't even know what it is, but he shared with me that he's taking some online courses at Ozark Christian College. And so I thought, well, Matthew, would you like to preach? And he's like, yeah. And so uh, we, we're doing this study through Core 52 this year. And I said, Matthew, you pick out which sermon you want to preach on, which week. And he picked this week, because this week is on the resurrection. So I'm happy and excited to have Matthew come out here and share with us. So would you welcome our brother Matthew Pennell? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Well, who could use a little good news this morning? Can anybody use a little good news? How about some amazing news? How about the news that the same resurrection that rose Jesus from the dead is living in us today? Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So like, like Tim said, we've been going on this sermon series on, on Beyond Belief, and I can only imagine that when those women that were going to the tomb that day to anoint Jesus' body and walking up to that tomb and seeing the stone be rolled away and him not there, I can only describe that as something that would be beyond belief. For us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that the cross is how we win. And the cross has become the main symbol of Christianity. I mean, how many of you are wearing a cross necklace right now? Or how many of you have a cross hanging up somewhere in your house? This has become our main symbol. But let me ask you a question. If the resurrection never happened, what do we have? One of my mentors, Shane Wood, always likes to ask the question, whenever we're reading the Bible, 
He likes to ask, if I'm studying this Bible, if I'm studying this passage in the Bible, and, and I've, I were to take out this particular text or remove it from what I'm studying, what would we be missing if that wasn't in the Bible? So with that in mind, without the resurrection of Jesus, what would we be missing as followers of Christ? Like Tim said, we've been going through this lesson on Core 52. And our Core 52 passage of the week is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, just to give a little context, though, we're going to, instead of starting in verse 14 with the Core 52 verse, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And here's the core 52 verse. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. I, I love how Tim Mackey from the Bible Project sums up what Paul's saying here. He, Tim says, the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel, and that we believe in the resurrection because of the eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people who saw Jesus alive in physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his death was meaningless, and we are still lost in our sin and selfishness, and we should just stop being Christians. Paul then goes on in his letter to the Corinthians and says, and show in detail that the resurrection was the victory over death and evil and how it is a source of life and power for us now. Remember how we started? It's in us now, in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. So what Paul was saying in his letter to the Corinthians, he, he's been addressing these issues in the church in Corinth. And some of these issues are the same issues we face today. But at the end, he concludes that Paul is saying that it's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason and have motivation for sexual integrity. It's because of the resurrection, and it's, it is the source of power for us loving others more than ourselves. Ultimately, the resurrection is our hope for victory over death. So Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians with the fact that we do believe that Jesus raised from the dead, which means this for, as, which means this for us as followers of Jesus. The gospel is not just some moral advice or some recipe for private spirituality. It is an announcement about Jesus Christ that opens up a whole new reality, and that reality is seeing every part of our lives through the true gospel message. So you might ask, so how do we see every part of our lives through the gospel of Jesus? One example is in our marriage. How do we treat our spouse? Do we, do we put our spouse's needs above the needs of our, uh, of our own needs? How about in our homes with our kids? Do we tell our kids one thing and then go out and live our lives totally different than what we were telling them? Remember, just like Jesus' ministry, 
Everything he said was validated by his deeds. And it's the same with us as, as we raise our kids. What we tell them should be validated by the way we act. How about in our job? Do we cut corners in our job? Or do we do like Paul commanded in Colossians? Do we work as if we are working for the Lord and not for humans? And this one right here, this one's a biggie, okay? How about in social media? Do our words, do our pictures, do our videos that we post on Facebook, Instagram, whatever it may be, do they honor God? Are they a shining light that points us, that, that points people to God? Or do they look at our posts and wonder how we can even call ourselves Christians at all? This for me right here is where the resurrection has really hit home for me recently. Because we know that the Bible tells us right here that Jesus rose, that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Amen? And we know that we have this future hope over here, right? That we will be, because of the resurrection, we will be reunited with our loved ones one day, right? So we have this long stretch here where we have this over here and then this over here. So how do we live our lives in between this? And that, that is where Christ has been working on my life recently. Because I know, I know that Jesus rose from the dead. And I know that I have this future hope of be re, being reunited with, like, my dad one day, or Taylor, the daughter that I never got to meet. I, I mean, how amazing would that be? I can't wait for that, but that's not here yet. So how am I supposed to live my life in between the fact that I know Jesus rose from the dead and I have this future hope one day of being resurrected as well? For me, this meant living my life, every single part of my life, in honor of Jesus and representing him in every single part of my life. For me, for, for me and Christy and our family, part of that was, was, was selling the boat. Honestly, us selling our boat was a huge step. We did, I mean, I wrestled with that for a long time, but I just felt like God was calling me to do more work for, for the kingdom, and that meant being able to sell, sell my boat to, to be able to free up time, to be able to free up money, because because I don't know how many of you know it, but Christy volunteers at the pregnancy center. So that was one of the main reasons that the Holy Spirit really started placing it in my mind to begin with. I was like, well, how can we figure out a way that she can work less so that she can spend more time volunteering and doing stuff that I feel like impacts the kingdom? So that was just one step for me. Another step was there would be times that I would be at home laying in the bed so tired from, from work, and Christy would be working around the house. And now I just can't help. I'm compelled to get up and help her. Like, and it is only by the Holy Spirit that I'm compelled to do this. For me, it is only by the Holy Spirit that I am a living example to Luke, Matt, and Noah. Yes, I do discipline them. We have to discipline them so that they learn. But you can ask them, you can ask Christy, I am always the first one there after disciplining them to wrap my arms around them and tell them that I love them and we'll get through this together. Another thing in my life is being humble and admitting when I do wrong and apologizing right away, not letting stuff fester up. Because we all know that when stuff gets in our mind like that and it festers up and, and we just hold on to it, like it's just going to eventually just blow up. So, I mean, it's not easy apologizing to your kids, right? I mean, when you do wrong, who wants to go apologize to a seven-year-old and tell them that somebody who's supposed to be so mature like me as an adult, I, I messed up. 
But for me, I feel like that is the example I am to them to show them that it's okay for grown-ups who are mature to go apologize to a little kid. Like, that's okay. For me also, that was being obedient and stepping out, just like Tim said. And I don't know where I'm going with this, you know, taking these master's classes with Ozark. I don't know. But after having conversation with Christy and praying about it, I just felt like the Lord was leading me to do this. And I feel like that's part of the mystery, right? I don't know where I'm going to be one year, two years, five years from now. But I feel like I can be obedient to God's calling in my life and let him work out those details. I don't try not to put God in a box. Look, I'm by no means claiming that I'm perfect. Y'all can ask Christy about that. That is, not, that is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's changed me. There is no other way I could describe what God has done for me and continues to do in my life as anything short of a resurrection into a whole new way of life and thinking. So with that in mind, resurrection is a miracle. The gospel author John actually records seven miracles within his gospel, which he calls signs. John even concludes his gospel by stating this in John 21, 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that, we, that would be written. So we know that Jesus performed many more than seven signs or miracles. But John, the gospel author John, chose seven and arranged them within his gospel to convey a point. With that in mind, let's take a look at the significance of numbers. For me, I love numbers and statistics. I can remember as a kid memorizing and studying the backs of these baseball cards right here. If anybody can see those, can you tell me what team this is? Can we get a Go Braves in here? <laughs> so, my, so my favorite player growing up was always Chipper Jones. And, the, and I bring this up because you're probably asking, what does this have to do with numbers? Well, I used to... My family actually called me when I was little the, the human sports encyclopedia because I literally would have the numbers on the back of these baseball cards, home runs, the, the statistics of these players memorized. They could ask me anything about any player who led home runs this year, who led RBIs, and I would know them. I've always been fascinated by numbers, which is why I think it's so fascinating when, when you come to the Bible and realize how significant numbers are. They're very significant in the Bible. I mean, the Apostle John absolutely loves numbers. And if you don't believe that, read the book of Revelation. For Jews, numbers meant more, though, than just a numerical value, unlike, unlike how we typically view numbers. From our good friends over at Wikipedia, <laughs> their current definition of a number is a mathematical object used to count, measure, and label. Numbers for the Jews were symbolic, though, especially the number seven. Although I will say for us, numbers are symbolic for us too, right? Just take a look at this picture, for instance. What, what's missing from this picture? Thirteen, that's right. So in, in, in tall buildings and apartments, they wouldn't use the number 13 because it was considered bad luck, which I find crazy because we all know we can count. What comes after 12 is still 13. You can label it whatever you want, but it's still the 13th floor. So I don't know. That one blows my mind. But 
Anyway, that's why, though. Or how about this as another example? I guarantee you, each and every one of you can close your eyes in this room right now. And when I say the numbers 9-11, you can think back to exactly where you were on that day. I, I guarantee you, you can tell me exactly where you were, what you were doing. It, it's almost like time stopped that day. So you see, for us, numbers are symbolic for us, too. We just don't always realize it. So for the Jews, the number seven was very symbolic. It was tied to completion. All the way back in Genesis 1, when we see the seven days of creation representing the fullness or completeness of the world, just do a word search for seven throughout the Bible, and you will see it everywhere. That is why I find it fascinating when we come to the Gospel of John, we find seven signs. Just look at the first sign recorded in John 2 where we see Jesus at the wedding banquet turning the water into wine. And we see in John 2.11 that he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Did you hear what John said? The first of his signs. John is inviting us to participate in counting with him. Then we see the second sign in John chapter 4 with the healing of the official son. And we read once again that John wants us to count with him. John 4.54 says this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Then again, in chapter 5, we have the healing of the disabled man. That's number 3. The feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. That's 4. Jesus walking on water in chapter 6. 5. The healing of the man born blind in John 9. That's 6. Then we come to John chapter 11 where we have the completion or the culmination of the seven signs within John's gospel. And this proves that the, with the resurrection of Lazarus proves Jesus has the power to resurrect, which gives us hope today. Let's turn to John chapter 11 and read about the resurrection of Lazarus together. So John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. <clears throat> his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So first, what I believe John is saying is that this seventh sign is the most important sign so far and that it brings the signs within his gospel to completion because it proves that resurrection of the dead is possible. We know this isn't the only person recorded that Jesus raised from the dead. We know that he raised Jairus' daughter. We also know that he raised the widow's son. But this resurrection was different. Remember that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. 
when Jesus resurrects him. These four days are very, very significant because Jewish tradition teaches that the soul stays with the body for three days after death. So at this point, Jesus is doing something only God himself could do. This says something in our own lives as well. I know it's true for me, like I spoke about earlier. The transformation that has been done for me with my resurrection to new life is something only God alone could have done. Secondly, with this seventh sign, I believe this sign is a preview or a glowing neon sign like this picture. It's a foreshadowing to the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus. Just take a look at what Jesus says to Martha right before the raising of Lazarus. John eleven twenty five through 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Jesus' own resurrection will provide resurrection life to all who believe. So let's take a look at the account of Jesus' resurrection according to the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be in Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as I told you. I want to pause just a second and reread that last line. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why does Mark say it like that? We have to take just a brief minute and remember who the mind is behind the gospel of Mark. Peter. I mean, you can almost, I can hear Peter almost weeping as he's telling Mark this part of the story. I can hear him almost weeping when he says, you know what the women told me? They told me the angels said my name. They told me the angels said my name. Just a couple of chapters earlier, this phrase, Jesus the Nazarene, was connected with a moment that I wish I could take back more than anything. Whenever a little slave girl asked me if I knew him, and I said, I've never even heard of him, again she asked, and I denied it. Then yet again, more people started asking if I knew him, and I began calling down curses, and I said, I do not know this man. And then I remember hearing the rooster crowing, but the angels said my name. We have this guy in Peter, the mind behind the Gospel of Mark, the same Peter who will be the one who gives the words of the kingdom of God on Pentecost. When the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is poured out on more than 3,000 people, 
The same Peter that denies Jesus three times. The same guy who in the Gospel of John, Jesus will look at him and say, Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. You see, we just got done talking about numbers earlier, which is why I find it fascinating. The number three is so, so interesting when you link them together within the life of Jesus. You see, three times Jesus is tempted by Satan. Three times in the garden, Jesus asks if it's possible to take the cup away. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus reinstates Peter. And I believe all of it is to say this. It doesn't matter how far we run away. We can always run back. And the beautiful thing, the amazing thing about Jesus is he just never leaves us. He's always there with arms wide open waiting for us to run back. And then we come to verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The earliest and best manuscripts do not have the additional ending in Mark 16, 9 through 20. So what if Mark's gospel ends in verse 8? What if it ends in verse 8? Let's reread verse 8 just so we get some context. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. For us, the resurrection is the reason we must share our faith. As C.S. Lewis once said about the resurrection, to preach Christianity meant to the early apostles primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. So we get to verse 8, and we have the only people who have witnessed the resurrection running away, fear and trembling, and telling no one. What is going on here? I think the answer to this abrupt ending that we have in Mark's gospel is the answer to why Jesus repeatedly in Mark's gospel heals people or his identity as Messiah is revealed like to Peter in Mark 8 when Peter claims that Jesus is the Messiah or to Peter, James, and John in, in Mark 9 at the transfiguration. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't tell anyone. What's interesting about this is that whenever the disciples of Jesus are told, don't go tell, they obey. But we see with the people that are healed, like the leper or the deaf and mute man, when they are told, don't go tell, they disobey because they just can't help but tell what Jesus has done for them. So we get to the end of Mark's gospel, and the first time we have the people who have been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry being told, to go tell someone about this good news, what do they do? What Jesus has been telling them all along is flipped by the angel here because Jesus has been telling them, don't go tell. And what does the angel tell them to do? Go tell. The angel tells them to go tell, but they run away fear and trembling and tell no one. Here's what I think Mark is doing. I think we get to the end. I think we, I think we get to the end of his gospel and Mark is holding up a mirror in which the Christians in the first century are staring back at themselves saying, what have I been told to do? In the middle of chaos crashing down all around me, 
in the middle of extreme persecution where carrying my own cross has become a reality. I know I've been told to go tell, but I'm not. I'm disobeying, but I'm disobeying in the wrong way. Every time Jesus told those he healed not to tell, they went out and told anyway. Now he has told me to go tell, and I know the truth about his identity. I know the truth about the crucifixion. I know the truth about the resurrection. I know what he has done for me, and I'm not telling anyone. So we do know that these women, because of the other gospels, did go tell. But what if they didn't? What would have happened? One of the questions that goes through my mind when I read at the end of Mark's gospel that they run away fear and trembling and tell no one is then how in the world is anyone going to know about the resurrection? That's when I think Mark looks at me and he looks out at you and he says, exactly. I know the world is chaotic. Just like Tim talked about earlier, I know people are dealing with loss of loved ones. I know that you are tempted to walk away fear and trembling and tell no one. But if we don't tell, who will? We get to the end of Mark, and what appears to be this weird ending is actually a huge punch in the gut. Mark says, Do you remember how I started this gospel? boldly proclaiming that Jesus is king. And after his ministry, after his death, and after his resurrection, you walk away fear and trembling? What else does Jesus need to do to get you to go tell? Man, you get to the end of the mark, and you realize there's a finger pointing back at me. There's a finger pointing out at all of you. And he is saying, you think the story of the resurrection has ended? It does if you don't go tell.